The scripture readings today will be from Genesis 37, verses 1 through 11, and in the New Testament, Acts 7, verses 1 through 10. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now the New Testament reading from Acts 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give him a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no children. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that, They shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him after all his afflictions. And gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler 
over Egypt and over all his household. The word of the Lord. When I texted Jim the other day to talk about, hey, when you get here, let's have a meal, talk about how I should make you more easily available to your new study. He was in the process of packing the truck. He said, hey, can I call you back? I said, don't even worry about it. When you get here, we'll connect. And remember, move is a four-letter word. <laughs> Punctuation mark. He texted back, yes. And I am all the more aware of that after living in one home for the last 14 years. We've been decluttering, getting ready for our own move, and in the process, it's amazing how much stuff you can accumulate over the course of all these years. Well, Jan came across a DVD of mine, Castaway, that rather, I thought, terrific, epic survival drama that starred Tom Hanks back in the year 2000. A modern Robinson Crusoe tale, conspicuously absent, however, any overt reference to God at all. Still, I mentioned to Jan how much that movie ministered to me when I saw it. And she was immediately interested, and I said, well, I'm not going to tell you why. And she said, you're not going to tell me? Well, not until we've watched it. Well, that determined our agenda for that evening. And when we finished the film, boom, she locked in on me like a laser. Well, there's a scene in the movie when Hank's character is awakened by a loud clanking metal on the beach. And he leaves his refuge cave and finds there on the shore about half of a porta potty, of all things, that has washed up with the debris. And you see him sitting there and studying this, and he comes up with this plan. He fabricates a raft and sets up that piece of metal as a sail of sorts. And its wind fills the sail and enables him to navigate and penetrate and get past the pounding surf around this island and eventually to make his way to sea and get rescued. Now, near the end of the movie, when he's back among civilization and he's reflecting upon that development in his some, I think, four-year journey, he makes a statement, a moral, that as I evaluated the cinematic entity that was that movie, that I thought pervaded the entire film. And I quote, you never know what the tide will bring in. 
You never know what the tide will bring in. At that time in Nancy's and my life, we had just come back to Central Florida from Idaho, and I was selling door and trim full-time at a local lumber yard doing inside sales. Now, nothing wrong with that kind of work. It was God's provision for me for those two years, as well as my part-time role here as worship leader. But I was beginning to despair about ever returning to full-time pastoral ministry, and particularly the privilege of pulpit work. But that might never happen. Go figure. A godless version of Robinson Crusoe, the Lord spoke to me. Not, not verbally, but I, I left the film in courage. Heff, you never know what the tide's going to bring in. Trust me and my providence. Keep your eyes open for how the tide might work. And not that long after that. OGC's needs for a pastor washed up on the shore of my life, restoring me to this work. And here we are, 15 years later. We come today in the book of Genesis to the final large section of this 50-chapter book, and it is signaled by a key word in the book. Verse 2, look at it. These are the generations of Jacob. From this point on, the focus of Genesis shifts from Jacob the third patriarch, remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we're moving from the life and times of Jacob, though he's still much involved, but the focus now shifts to how God will work in and through Joseph, Jacob's next to youngest son. Joseph's life and times span the rest of the book, from chapter 37 to 50. Now, I want you to turn with me for a moment to chapter 50. You have your Bible with you. If not, the verse will be on the screen. But for the survey, chapter after chapter, big picture treatments of the rest of this book, I highly recommend you have a Bible in front of you. We're touching down in various places on and off. Arguably, though, the single most important verse that ties together the thrust of the life and times of Joseph in his own words is Genesis 50, verse 20. After all that transpires between Joseph and his brothers, particularly the difficult events that 
involved their betrayal of him that bring him to Egypt. Here's where he lands on 13 years of enslavement. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, Reuben, Levi, Silas, Judah, Asher, Zebulun, the rest, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. If you highlight, circle, emphasize any verse in this section, 50, 20, is that verse. You meant evil, God meant good, many are saved. Now again, with the agenda we're on of a sprint to the finish line, multiple chapters at a time, we have to stick with the broad strokes, but here's a theme. I think you can grasp tying these five chapters together. My main idea, God sovereignly rules over absolutely everything in advancing his blessing plan. Everything. Your everything. Whatever it is. God's sovereignly, that's what providence as a doctrine, a teaching of the scripture so well articulated in that portion of our confession, declares God's sovereign control and rule pertains to everything. Nothing thwarts, threatens, derails, or jeopardizes his blessing-saving plan. I see four things here in these chapters, somewhat perhaps surprising in this regard. And before we start looking at them one at a time, let me enumerate the four. Scandalous sin. Severe temptation. Serial trials and sovereign servants. First, scandalous sin. Perhaps the most surprising of all four. Two things conspire early on in chapter 37 to spin things seriously out of control with Blessing's family, Jacob and his plan. One, favoritism. Good grief. Again, favoritism of Jacob with Joseph. 
the son of his old age, the text says. Do you think Jacob was no better after mom and dad who went before him? But no, spins him out this coat, this luxurious coat, and treats him better than the rest. This has disastrous consequences, but please note again, don't let this be lost, the theme of sovereign election, the younger over the older. Here it is, another time. Joseph over his brothers. But the favoritism, as was the case in the previous household, damages this one. Chapter 37, verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This was an enormous breach between the brothers and Jacob. Now, pardon me, Joseph. So one, favoritism. I said two things are conspiring here. Two, dreams. Dreams. Tensions escalate dramatically with Joseph's brain and celestial body dreams that he elects to share with the siblings and even his father. And even Jacob protests in verse 10, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what? Is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Well, yeah. And if you know the rest of the story, that's where we are headed. In the Old Testament, God often used dreams to communicate to his people. Here we have it again. We have seen it before. And Jacob knows this. By his own experience, and so even though he rebukes his son, this note the editor includes in verse 11. But his father kept the saying in mind. But the brothers react with even more hatred, verses 5 and 8, all the more hostility. The emphasis twice lets us know just how upset, hostile, angry they were. The rest of the chapter, we didn't have time to read. I do so hope you're able to spend some time reading through this in advance. It will help, again, your experience of listening. The rest of the chapter is an astonishing tale of treachery. Joseph's brothers plot to kill him. 
but end up selling him into slavery to Midianite traders. And then what to do about dad? <laughs> In a deceptive ruse, dripping with goat blood irony. Reuben and the rest present to Jacob that beautiful coat Joseph wore, drenched with wild animal blood, saying Joseph's been devoured. Do you remember? Jacob once deceived his father with the smell of a goat and the light. So too, he gets deceived, resulting in grief. He expects to take to his grave in 37-35. But never fear. The tide washes ashore in chapter 37, verse 36. Look at it. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. Providence. An officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. More on this in chapter 39. I won't even think about skipping 38. 38 is in the Bible for so many reasons. And we are not to be embarrassed by it, but to take it at face value and see what do we make of this sordid tale of sexual sin unequaled anywhere else in Genesis. You cannot make this stuff up. And it seems at first blush, a detour. How does it fit with Joseph's story? But not so fast. We have been taking note every time Something threatens blessing's plan. I've called it covenant jeopardy numerous times, but nothing more significant than the sin of God's people. In 38, Judah. Son number four goes rogue off the rails. A prodigal who leaves the family. And where does he go? To the land of the Canaanites. And what does he do? He marries one of them. Shreve. Abraham made his servant swear, don't take Isaac with you to that place. That's what permanently wicked people that God will judge when their time is up. It will threaten the plan. Isaac, similarly, take a woman only from there. Was Jacob instructed. Judah, 
marries. And so marriage has been absolutely off the radar screen as an option, and yet here she is, the one whose mother named him praiseworthy, as Sean wrote. This is a shocking turn, development. They have a couple of kids, Air and Onan. Beauties, oh my. Air does something wicked enough, God puts him down. Tamar, his wife, is now a widow. Onan refuses to do the right thing, raise up children for her to sustain the family line, something that the law of God eventually governed in the Mosaic Code. This was the way things worked back then. His refusal to do the right thing cost him his life. She's a widow now, twice over. Judah promises Tamar, God's got his attention now, when the third and final son comes of age, I'll give him to you and you'll be taken care of. But he reneges when the time comes. So, and this is catastrophic for this woman. You gotta get your hands and arms and mind around the time of the day. She's left exposed. She's got nothing to come to look forward to. So she takes matters into her own hands. This is such a wild story. Gets out of her widow clothes, puts on cult prostitute clothes, goes to a place where she knows Judah is going to visit. She doesn't recognize her. She goes into her. She gets pregnant. She rather shrewdly takes a pledge from him for payment that he's going to come back and give and takes it home with her. She's not to be found. He says, oh, well, all is well. But three months later, when she starts to show and he's ready to burn her for her sin, Tamar says, uh, show him these. And all he can say in chapter 38, verse 26 is, she is more righteous than I. All right, fascinating story, but where are you going with this, PC? Here's the deal. Fast forward six months, time to have a baby. Twins, a bizarre labor and delivery tale, and the family line, watch now, ends up continuing through Perez rather than Zara. Zara comes out first, back in, then Perez. That younger older thing going on again, first and last. You jump ahead to Ruth chapter 4, where we're getting to Obed, who's heading for David, king of Judah. And Ruth chapter 4 praises this development. Now, watch, watch, because you keep on going down the generations, and you get to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, David's greater son, who's in that genealogy. What woman is in the Matthew 1 genealogy of our glorious Messiah, Jesus the Christ? What woman? What is her name? 
first with the two. Timor! Really? Yes. Tell me that does not epitomize both of these chapters. What the brothers do to their brother. And this craziness with Judah and Tamar and Perez and Zerah ends up in the Messiah's line. Tell me that does not say that heavenly God sovereignly controls and rules over all things, including our brokenness. I've got some things in my resume. Shame me. I came to Christ in my 20s, and that was not the end of some of my shameful stuff. But I am here to tell you, because I know that many of you, if not all of you, have your own. If you belong to King Jesus, if he, is, if he has paid the ransom for your soul, how deep the Father's love for you. Even that thing that you have in your head right now that maybe nobody else knows about. Or only your most intimate friend, your spouse maybe. Not even that defines you. Not even that controls your destiny. Not even that thwarts, intercepts, jeopardizes God's blessing plan for your good. I'm not saying there aren't consequences. You bet your sweet life there are. So think twice before you risk. Counterfost. But this, this is the grand miracle of race. God's sovereign control over even scandalous sin. Two, severe temptation. Now we're at chapter 39. Back to Joseph. And here we will see why chapter 38 is not out of place. Joseph presents a striking Contrast on when you're faced with immorality that God wants us to see. But again, before we go there, note God has sovereignly ruled over the sinful actions of the brothers and even Judah to bring Joseph to Egypt and position him that eventually he's going to end up saving the rest of the blessing family from the severe famine by bringing them all, all of them, into Egypt. This is the benefit of doing this survey approach. We're seeing the big picture of what God is doing. All right. Joseph, remember, he lands up property of Potiphar, big shot captain of the guard. And immediately, the writer emphasizes something about blessings bearer circumstances. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. 
Potiphar prospered so much that he put Joseph in charge of the whole deal. Great. This is terrific. Verses 2 through 6. Much better season for him, even though he's in slavery. But it doesn't take long for trouble to brew. Enter Mrs. Potiphar. Apparently, Joseph is kind of a people's choice, most handsome guy alive, picture front kind of guy. And she wants him. And she pursues him. Relentlessly. Verse 10 describes it. Day by day. Good grief, how hard that must have been. But all in the providence of God. And Joseph would have none of it. This is worth camping out on for a moment. Genesis 39, 8 through 9. When Mrs. Potiphar says, lie with me, he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. Joseph understands to sleep with her is to defraud her and Potiphar. Do not, young people, young people, do not listen to the conventional blather of the day. You take for yourself the most intimate realities of another man or a woman. You are stealing, defrauding what does not belong to you. That only belongs to you. That, you see, there's more than sexual immorality in that. There is treachery and robbing the rights, the crown rights that only one man and one woman are to have over a body. Serious. And Joseph gets that, and that's where he starts in his refusal to give in to temptation. But that's not where he ends. For he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph is not just a relationally wise and aware person on the horizontal with other people, but with God. He is a Psalm 51, 4a, against you and you only have I sinned kind of man. Mrs. P. is so brazen one day that she literally grabs him. Lie with me! And he tells you, and here, here is great counsel. 2 Timothy 2, 22, flee! Run! Chase your coat with you, but flee! Somehow that gets left behind she brings up charges, they stick, and this poor guy is thrown in the pit. But, but, 
Be encouraged. Genesis 39, 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph ends up running that place too. See the emphasis of verse 23? The Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Pastor Eric Raymond wrote for Desiring God this blog recently. There's nothing random about your life. Nothing random about your life. Every hand is dealt by divine providence. Every circumstance we find ourselves in, whether good or bad, is actually working together for our everlasting good. The difficulties are not pointless, but purposeful. God is making us more like himself by them and through them. But God is not only changing us through this, God is also with us through this. He enters into our struggles. He cheers us with his presence, shows us his kindness, sympathizes with our weakness, and refreshes us with his word. We never sink lower than Christ can descend. We can never outrun his loving sovereignty. He joins us in the pit to give us more of himself. As I was thinking through and praying about this this morning, I remembered being in Florida South in 05. I had already had one chemotherapy blast as a follow-up for my tongue cancer, and it was just napalm to my body. I reacted so badly to that that Dr. Rose said, I'm never treating you again this way without putting you in the hospital. So I was in Florida South after multiple infections of the blood and high fever and a host of things that were a part of the first treatment that it was time for number two cisplatin, a three-hour infusion. Uh, oh, my. I don't know if I ever felt more lonely, if I ever felt more fearful, if I ever had more dread. Because at the same time, they were doing radiation every day. And it's just the, the, the totality of the impact on my body was just hard to describe. Somehow, and here's, here's what I want to say to you. If you're in that place of a pit and you're hearing, there's no place you can so deeply descend that Jesus does not descend there with you. You must be listening to him in his word. You have to get this and somehow drag yourself to open it and say, I need a word. I need to hear your voice. And I was in Jeremiah that morning getting ready for them to hook me up. And I got one verse. The Lord is with you as a dread warrior. 
The Lord is with you as a dread warrior. And oh, I latched onto that. And Dr. Throat came in and said, are you ready? And I showed it to a Christian. I would have showed him if he wasn't. He's with me as a dread warrior. Give me what you got. How I clung to that time and time again. Nothing's random. You can never sink lower than Christ can descend. He rules over it, all of it. He advances his plan. Scandal of sin, severe temptation. Third, serial trials. Serial trials. Notice how the chapter 40 opens. Sometime after this. How long, I wonder. Some of you are asking, how long? What, what is sometime after this for me? But something new. You never know what the tide's going to bring in. It washes ashore. It's called a cupbearer and a baker. Two crucial servants charged with guarding the life of Potiphar's prince of Egypt, Pharaoh. They mess up. They both land up in prison. And there are dreams that the, here we go again. Aslan is on the move. The tide is bringing stuff ashore. Joseph, he happens to be supervising them. Ah, oh, what, what a coincidence. He sees their troubled countenances. What's up? Man, there's dreams. Nobody can interpret. Well, they belong to God, don't they? Let me have it. He interprets. Works out pretty well for the cupbearer. You're going to be restored in three days. And Joseph sees a window. Chapter 40, verse 14. Remember me. Uh, hey, I'm helping you out here. Remember me when you get back up there, when it's well with you, and do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and get me out of here. My uh, version of the translation. The baker, not so hot. Yeah, your head's going to be lifted up. You're going to hang on a tree, and um, that's just the way it is. And it happened that way. But the hip bearer forgets. Two years. Are you not ready to stay with Job's wife? Curse God and die. Are you not ready to have your heart captured by resentment, terminal bitterness, and to say, forget it? I think sometimes waiting for a desire, and by the way, in these setbacks for Joseph, it's a 13-year journey of suffering and ups and downs. I sometimes think waiting for the desire of your heart can be one of the worst trials. 
What does the proverb say? Heart deferred, hope deferred, makes the heart sick. The week I wrote this message, I did a podcast recording. Um, by the way, forgive me, um, I'm, they're having trouble with my new teeth. I found out this past week that the appliances fit just a bit inappropriately, and it cut an open sore in the back of my cheek. and. So I had laser surgery on Friday. I'm, uh, I'm having some trouble, and I may be, it may be more difficult for you to hear, and I apologize. And I just think, okay, Lord, um, here we are, here I am. I need to hear what I'm preaching <laughs> about serial trials, but we just can't ever seem to hit this thing in the rearview mirror. It's been painful enough to get back on some meds I'd rather not be on, but um, all that to say, um, Colin Hanson, the general editor of the Oswald Coalition, thanks to my dear friend and co-worker Mike, um, did a very positive review for my book coming out in November, and they wanted to do a podcast, and so I'm pretty candid in the book about some of the suffering that I've been through and how God has used it in my life. And Colin asked me a candid question about it, and I was pleased to engage that with him. And I quoted a verse that I shared last week, and here it is again, that I have continually come back to time and time again from the Psalms, 119.71. It's good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. It's not bad to be afflicted. God gets your attention. He teaches you from his word in ways that may not otherwise happen to you. I entitled this message, Joseph in the Crucible of Affliction, because he is also in a school of obedience training. God is equipping him for his next major assignment. Whatever it is that has you tied up in knots right now, or the next thing that will, it's not wasted, it's purposeful, it's redemptive, and it's good for you in the big picture of what God is doing to advance his blessing plan and equip you for your next assignment. One last thing. Scandalous sin, severe temptation, Serial trials for servant subjects, chapter 41. You're working really hard, and I appreciate it. There's so much here. You never know what the tide will bring in. You never know what God will do next. You never know whom he will use. In chapter 41, it's the most powerful man on the planet. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, washes ashore in Joseph's life. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. 
he turns it wherever he will. Watch the news with Proverbs 21.1 in your head. President Trump's heart is like water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Vladimir Putin's heart is like water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Kim Jong-un's is like water. They all are. Don't panic. God's always at work. Pharaoh, (laughs) two more dreams. They're all over the place at the end of this book. God is ramping up his plan. Seven fat, attractive cows. Jane and I were reading through this after breakfast yesterday, and she looked at me and said, what's attractive about a cow? Maybe if you're a rancher, cows are pretty. I don't know. But they're fat and they're plump. And then there are these ugly, thin, lean cows. And the lean cows eat up the fat ones, similar with another, another dream for emphasis. The thing is decreed by God, Joseph says, it will happen. The lean ears eat up the fat ones. And no one can interpret the meaning. Pharaoh can't sleep. What am I to do? Cupbearer, ding, 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 ding. Oh, yeah. There's a shy in prison I forgot two years ago. He did a pretty good job with my dream. Maybe, boom, clean him up, shave him, bring him in. What can you do, Joseph? And he will interpret, but not before he makes the credit plain, which is why I know in the pit, all that time forgotten, his heart has not succumbed to a first shot and die. But to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on him because he cares for you. First Peter 5, 6 and 7. It, Genesis 41, 16, it's not me, this interpretation thing. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. The dreams reveal what he's about to do. Seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. Joseph said, no, I think I have an idea. Let's store up reserves during the crisis, and then we'll have plenty to take care of everybody when they're in need. Pharaoh said, nobody's smarter than you are. I'm putting you in charge. Number two guy. Everybody's going to bow down to you. Here's a chariot. Have a few horses. Whatever you say goes. Your word is mine. From the prison to the palace. Everyone must bow. The psalmist in 105 comments this way and captures it in 16 to 22. I'm almost done. Hang in there with me, please. Psalm 105, 16 to 22, watch this. When he summoned the famine on the land, when God summoned the famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. The pit was brutal. 
until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Some of you are in a pit, and the word of the Lord is testing you. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Can see Joseph's greater son in what transpires here. Jesus, the Son of God, sent by the Father to save many from a blight far greater than world famine, the ravages of sin and hell, he was severely tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He suffered serial trials at the hands of his own people who rejected him. The word of the Lord tested Jesus of Nazareth, and he passed with glorious obedience every test. He endured scandalous sins of betrayal, for pieces of silver. He endured deceit. He endured abuse. He endured the ultimate death on the cross and was plunged into a pit of God's blazing wrath for our sins and buried in a tomb. But God, who is no mere Pharaoh, raised him from the dead and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Joseph, greater son. Has he washed up upon the rock-strewn shores of your life. Maybe that's what the tide's bringing in today. It should be today. So much would love to talk with you more about that. Come, introduce yourself. I have some gifts I can give you that will help. But if he has, and that's where most of us are, are you entertaining the notion that anything at all affecting your life, sin, temptation, trials, accidents, subjects, that they're random, coincidental, insignificant? No, there is no such thing. If you're in Jesus, he uses it all for his sovereign purposes. Remember, while you wait for what next the tide will bring in, and it will bring in something, you never sink lower than Jesus can descend. And he will exalt you at the proper time. Oh, Father, we believe, help our unbelief, 
We praise you for Joseph, Raider's son, Jesus, Messiah, and the light now having thought through the way this blessings bearer of all points to him that we can sing his praises. Have your way in us. Grant us confidence in your sovereign rule over even the most surprising things to advance your plan. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.